0: Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Ephesians 5. We're going to read verse 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this portion of your scriptures. And we ask that you would guide us this morning, lead us into truth. As we seek to understand this portion of Scripture, would you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening this morning in your sanctuary. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, Into the Silent Land, Martin Laird shares a story of walking in a park. He would walk in the park when his mind was unsettled and the long stroll would allow him to settle his thoughts, settle the storm inside his head. And as he takes this stroll through the walk, he sees a man walking four dogs. The dogs were Kerry Blue Terriers. If you know what that means, what that is, Uh, I didn't at first, so I had to look it up. But they are uh, medium-sized, energetic, graceful, beautiful dogs. And these three, three of the dogs are bounding through the field, doing what dogs do, running, playing, having fun. But the fourth is doing something rather odd. He's running in tight little circles around and around as if he were inside an invisible bubble. Laird observes this for a few minutes and then finally gains the courage to ask the owner exactly what we would be thinking and asking, why does your dog do that? There are these open fields, and your dog is running around in circles, tight little circles. And the owner explains to Laird that before he had acquired the dog, the dog spent most of its life in a cage so that the only way it could get exercise was to run the perimeter of the cage around and around and around. And so for this dog to run is actually to run in tight circles, even with an open field of freedom. And reflecting on this owner's response, Laird says this, this event has always stayed with me as a powerful metaphor for the human condition. For indeed we are free, as the psalmist insists, my heart like a bird has escaped from the snare of the fowler, quoting Psalm 123, but the memory of the cage remains. And so we run in tight little circles, even while immersed in open fields of grace and freedom. And in Ephesians, Paul recognizes that our memory of the cage of sin remains and that we too run in tight little circles rather than in the fields of God's grace and freedom. Does life ever feel like that for you? You feel like you're just running around and around the same sins. What is that sin for you or those sins? Is it anger? Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's power or cynicism. Maybe it's greed, the love of money. Maybe it's self-indulgence. But does life feel like that, running in circles? We do this because we've been trained, just like that dog. We have been trained to run in circles around our sin, and we need new training. And so Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians convincing you of the grace in which God has given you freedom to run. He's blown up the cage of sin And in Jesus, you are free from all of sin's guilt and all of sin's power. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then in these last three chapters, Paul's fleshing out how to live a new life in Jesus. He's shown you the splendor of the field, and now he's telling you what it means to run. He introduces this language of walking in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so all of chapters 4, 5, and 6 are teasing out what that life looks like. The life lived in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. He does this by taking the probe of the gospel into every area of your life and my life leaving no stone unturned. The gospel's like water. It seeps into every nook and cranny in our hearts and our lives, and it undoes us. It untrains us from walking and running in those circles, and it retrains us, remaking us after the image of our creator. And so, as you can tell this morning, we have some dicey uh, topics to deal with. And I recognize that uh, there are young ears, uh, and so I'm going to try my best to be as appropriate, uh, appropriately modest while we have this discussion. But we're not going to stray away from difficult things, because Paul doesn't stray away from difficult things, because the gospel speaks to different uh, difficult aspects of our lives. But before we get to those difficult topics, before we get to those difficult things, I want to re- quickly remind you of two things. Uh, There will be a temptation for some of us to say, well, I don't struggle with these things, therefore, this doesn't speak to me. But no one here is free from guilt. All of us have looked at, desired, or acted upon our sinful inclinations. And we we are all in desperate need of God's grace. But then there will be some of us who have acted on those inclinations and are tempted to say, I'm beyond God's grace. And the gospel says, no, you're not. Not one person here is beyond God's grace. No matter how far you've gone, you've not gone too far. The well of God's grace is is far deeper than the well of your sin. And so live with those two things, recognizing that we've all failed, but God's grace runs deeper still. He is far more merciful than we are sinful. So today, Paul is contrasting two ways of life. One is a way of uh, self-gratification. The other is the life imitating God. So we're going to ask a really simple question this morning. How do we walk this new way of life? How do we become imitators of God? How do we run the field of God's grace and freedom? And Paul uses that same word, walk, that he used in chapter 4, verse 1. He uses it three times here in chapter 5 to show us what this way of life looks like. And he begins first by saying, You walk in love, verses 1 to 6. In verses 1 and 2, love is defined by God as inherently self sacrificing. Notice he says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So love is self-giving. It seeks to give yourself for the blessing of others, not for them to be a blessing to you. But then Paul moves immediately in verses three through six to an area of life that can be incredibly self-serving. This is love's opposite, self-indulgence. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, which can also be translated as greed, are some of the hallmarks of Ephesian society and worship. They were often preceded by filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. You heard a few weeks ago that one of the seven wonders of the world was in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, or uh, the temple of Diana, the Roman or, and Greek goddess. Among other things, Diana was the goddess of chasti- chastity, and she was served in the temple by temple prostitutes who would give themselves to the worshipers who showed up inside the temple walls. But outside the temple, in social gatherings, where people would gather to have conversations and to learn from one another, they would eat, they would drink, they would be merry, they would be enjoying themselves. And then as the wine flowed, Sensualized joking and foolish talk would begin and the party would eventually devolve into debauchery and into sexual immorality of all kinds. And when I say of all kinds, if you name it, it happened in Ephesus. This was a hyper-sexualized society where no line couldn't or even shouldn't be crossed. Everything and everyone was fair game. Frankly, American society is not much different. We mirror Ephesus in a lot of ways. Now, we don't have big, grand, beautiful wonders of the world like the Temple of Diana, but we do have clubs, We do have stores. We do have TV shows that celebrate the sexualization of the human body. Our culture celebrates sex before marriage, outside of marriage, celebrates it virtually on the internet, corporately at parties, and even in the advertising industry. We live in a society that not only tolerates sexual expression outside of marriage, but expects it even encourages it. If you don't affirm our culture's sexual expressions, then you're seen as archaic, irrelevant, and ironically, unloving. We get accused of being unloving in the biblical sexual ethic. And so Paul says in verse six, don't be deceived by these empty words. There's nothing loving about self-indulgence. There's nothing loving about objectifying someone else's body. Sexual immorality is the using of someone else's body for my own personal gratification. It's literally the exact opposite of love as defined by God. And this is why Paul says this shouldn't even be named among us. Because we are the community marked by the self-giving love of God. We are a community marked by Jesus' sacrifice. Notice how Paul speaks of Christ's love. He says that Jesus gave himself up for us. Jesus himself says in John 10, that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. No one took his life, He freely, willingly, sacrificially gave that life up for you. And it's this kind of love that the self-giving God in Jesus invites you into. He invites you not just to experience his love, but to mimic his love. to, 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 To flesh out that love in your everyday life. The church is the community where the self-giving love of Jesus is lived out. And those who have, as those who have experienced that love, we then turn to love one another. We don't use one another for our own personal gratification, but rather we serve one another as God in Christ has first served us, laying down his life for us. That's what it means to walk in love. And then second, in verse 8, we're told that to live this new way of life, we are to walk as children of light. What he's saying in verses 7 through 14 is that not only do you offer yourself in self-giving love, but you do so in such a way that it becomes appealing, that you show what the new life of Jesus is all about. Paul uses this metaphor of light to express what effect the conduct of the Christian community has on a darkened society. We are those who have arisen from the dead in verse 14. He says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are those to whom God has done that. We have arisen, not because there's something good in us, but because God worked to resurrect our dead souls and Christ has shown his light on us and the resurrected Christian lives in such a way that we produce what is good and right and true verse 9 these are the fruits of light and in doing this we expose in verse thir- verse 11 the unfruitful works of darkness Unfruitful works simply means that the things that the world runs to for satisfaction are ultimately empty, fruitless. They don't work. They don't produce the satisfaction that our souls desperately long for. And then in verse 13, we see there's a transformation that takes place. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light the darkness becomes light that's what happened in each one of us when God shone the light of his gospel into us into you he resurrected your soul giving you life and then creating you into light to be light to a darkened world there's an evangelistic work to walking as children of light. You don't just tell the world what they're doing is wrong. That's necessary, right? It's necessary for us to expose the darkness, but you also show them a better way. You show the way of goodness, righteousness, and truthfulness, and some will come to believe and will become light themselves. Years ago, I was sitting in a class in seminary uh, when a woman from Thrive St. Louis came in to talk to us about abortion in Missouri. Uh, Thrive is a similar ministry to First Coast Women's Services. They, uh, uh, they seek to provide medical care, medical resources, and education for women with unplanned pregnancies in hope of, occur- of, of curbing the abortion rates in Missouri. And what she showed us was a steep decline in abortion rates from 1990 to 2010, just 20 years. But to what do you think she attributed this decrease? It wasn't to picketing Planned Parenthood and it wasn't to legislation in Missouri. Those things have their place, but that's not what caused the decrease. She said it was to education, thrive in other ministries like it entered into schools, Went, went to the schools where most young women were susceptible to, uh, to being encouraged to get abortions and they educated them. They showed these young women that there was a respectable and desirable better way. That the be- there was a better way to approach sexual ethics. There was a better way to approach raising a child. If we just expose the darkness of the world, telling them what's wrong, then we leave them in fear and despair. And they ultimately hate Jesus for it because Jesus is the cause of their fear and their despair. We've seen this in the way that the church over the last 150 years or so talks about sex and sexual immorality. We simply condemn it and we don't show them anything more beautiful. We condemn their acts of immorality, and they hate Jesus because we've never shown them anything better. We just tell them what not to do. We've shown them, uh, we haven't shown them that God provides joy and satisfaction, fullness of life when we follow in the steps of Jesus and walk in self-giving love in marriage as we give ourselves to one another, both body and soul. Now we're not talking about perfection, right? We said earlier, none of us is free from guilt, not one of us, none of us are free from accusation. That's why God's grace is so sweet and so beautiful because he has shown his light Unto us. Walking as children of light is not, light. It's not about walking in perfection. We're all gonna fail. The light of Jesus has shone onto our failures. He himself has exposed our shame, He has exposed our failures. And the Christian life is a continual going back to the source of light and letting that light direct our steps. That's what it means to walk as children of light, showing the culture a better way, showing the world a Christian ethic that goes back to Jesus himself. So we walk in love. We walk as children of light. And then lastly, we walk this way of life by walking in wisdom. I heard a really great definition of wisdom a few years ago. Wisdom is the art of living well. It's really simple. It's the art of living well. Another way uh, to say that is that wisdom is the art of living more fully human. And here, Paul says the life of wisdom is characterized by a number of things in verses 15 through 21. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk on wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, redeeming the time, understanding God's will, being filled with the Spirit. These are all different ways of talking about the same thing. Talking about living well, living a more fully human life. Walking in wisdom means redeeming the time, using your time for the things that are good and right and true, because the days are evil. And the days are not using wisdom to walk in goodness, righteousness and truthfulness. It means not living in the foolish self-indulgence of the world, but understanding God's desires and his direction for our lives. And it means not getting drunk on wine but instead of being filled with the spirit. Now, Paul's not advocating abstinence. He's not den- denigrating uh, wine and alcohol, but he's simply contrasting the foolish life of intoxication, being filled with wine, being influenced by it. He's contrasting that life with the life of wisdom, the life being filled with the Holy Spirit, being influenced by the Holy Spirit. Yes, we've been given the Spirit, but there is an activity to engage. It's to stay sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. Because remember what would happen in the social gatherings in Ephesus. People would eat and drink, being filled with wine, and the party would devolve into debauchery. These acts degrade your humanity. But staying sensitive to God's spirit, whom he's placed inside you, empowers you to live out what is good good and right and true. Helping you to live a more fully human life. That's what he's doing for you. As you stay sensitive to his spirit's leading, he's leading you into fullness of life. And this life of wisdom is necessarily learned in the community of faith. He says that we are to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As we gather here week in and week out, we proclaim the good news of the gospel to each other in our words And in our songs, singing to one another, yes, proclaiming God's goodness, singing to God, but also singing to one another, convincing each other of the goodness of God's grace. We give thanks to God for the good gifts that he's given us. And so retraining ourselves to walk in wisdom, denying self-indulgence, and recognizing that God is the giver of all good gifts and we submit to one another, learning wisdom from those who are wiser than ourselves. Friends, we were never meant to live the Christian life alone. We were never meant to walk alone. God has designed us, created us to walk in love, light, and wisdom. In community, because we can't do it alone, and if you try, you will die. This is a new society. The whole time, Paul has been contrasting two societies, two separate ways of life the society of the world, defined by the way of life of sexual immorality, self indulgence, drunkenness, and darkness, the society living in the confines of the cage of sin, running around the perimeter. But God has removed that cage of sin. He's thrown it away. He's blown it up in his son, Jesus, and he's placed us into the open fields of his grace, the open fields of his freedom. He's created us to be a society defined by a new way of life, by sacrificial love, as we have been first loved by Jesus, we then walk in that sacrificing love for one another by goodness, righteousness, and truthfulness of the light. As those who have first been shown the light, we are the ones on whom Jesus has shown his light. He has resurrected your soul. And you're to show the world what resurrection living is supposed to be like. And then by spirit filled wisdom, as those in whom God's spirit resides, he lives there. He lives in you. God himself making his abode in your soul. Stay sensitive to him. Let him lead you into wisdom, because he will. In Jesus, we don't have to walk in those tight little circles like that cary blue terrier. We truly can run this new way of life in Jesus in the field of God's grace and freedom. That is his new way of life for you. Let's pray.